Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm really excited to be part of this STR Stronger Together Meet the Scholar session. Um, it's one of our last ones as we're closing fast upon the start of AOM this year. Um, and I'm particularly um, honored that I get to interview Nandini Rajagopalan today. Um, many of you know her work. Um, before I start talking to her, um, I wanted to uh, remind you of some of the amazing things that she's done, just so it's fresh in your mind and maybe see some questions for our conversation today. Um, so Nandini is the Joseph A. DeBell Chair in Business Administration and Professor of Organization at USC Marshall School of Business. She's also served as the Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs, among some other administrative um, appointments the last couple of years that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, her PhD is from the University of Pittsburgh and her MBA um, is from the Indian Institute of Management. Um, and I think, you know, you're all here because you know Nandini's research so well. So, um, you know, I think many of us have characterized her research as being known, among other things, for um, being on platform-based markets, diversification, strategic alliances, CEO succession, corporate governance, um, the list goes on. Um, you know, I actually tried to count looking at her CV yesterday, but I sort of lost count around at least 50 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters and more. Um, there's over 7,500 citations to her research. Um, there are numerous awards, um, too many to go through an introduction here, but um, Nandini has been well honored for all of her work. So she, in addition to some amazing distinguished faculty fellow um, designations from USC, um, she's also a recipient of the Provost Mentoring Award there. She's a fellow of our Strategic Management Society. Um, you know, I'd like to highlight that, again, as I started counting and looking through um, various things that Nani's done, let's just say there's been numerous Best Reviewer Awards, um, even as a somewhat more senior scholar, which I thought was really, I don't know, encouraging to those of us that worry that when we send our papers out into the void, that it's just an angry grad student reading them. So it means there's people like, that are thoughtful like Nani reading them and giving us great feedback. Um, and then I'd like to highlight too how many teaching awards she's won at uh, so many different programs, different types of students, different courses. Um, she's really an exemplar to all of us of how to really engage with students while still being research active. Um, she was also an AE at uh, AMJ and so has served on numerous editorial boards. I highlighted three here, so edit the editorial boards of Academy of Management Journal, Strategic Management Journal, and the California Management Review. And I added the last to the list to talk about today just because I think it highlights um, the relevance that her research has um, to the real world, as it were. So um, welcome, Nandini. Um, so just to give everyone sort of the lay of the land, we'll start out with some Q&A with Nandini and I, and that'll probably go about 45 minutes to an hour, um, at which point we'll open up for Q&A from you. Um, and you can put your questions into the chat box or raise your hand, um, depending how big the group is. So. Um, so welcome, Nandi. Thank you. It's so good to have you. Um, I should also note, by way of induction and a personal note, um, Nandini's been such a, an inspiration and a mentor to me um, at, ever since I was a doctoral student and starting at the University of Washington. There is a West Coast Research Symposium conference that we have that's co-hosted by um, University of Washington as well as USC among some other schools. And because of that, I feel very lucky to have had um, Nandini commenting on my early stage research, giving me career advice, um, and inspiring me all along the way. Um, so one of the things that's really nice about this format, Nandini, is we kind of stray from some of the things we usually talk about at the academy when you're giving distinguished scholarship speeches. Um, and some of those are sort of getting into 
you know, what shaped you and what shaped your research questions. So to begin, could you tell us a little bit about growing up? Where did you grow up? And what were some of the shaping experiences that you had along the way? First of all, um, Emily, thank you so much for that. Very generous and frankly, rather embarrassing introduction. You know, it's, it's an honor enough to be, be sharing some of my ideas and thoughts and with people that I have, I have enormous respect for. So I want to thank Samina. I want to thank the strategy, you know, strategic management division. I see a theme here. We go back a long way. People like Dick Ma Richard McDock, who's I can see on my screen. Uh, Eunice, who's been one of our students. Uh, I can see Jay Chalk. I, I can recognize quite a few names, and it's really very, very special to be part of this this wonderful group. Uh, and again, thank you so much for a very generous introduction. Um, you know, uh, in terms of, I'll, I'll try and keep my responses brief, so feel free to probe more if I say something that piques your interest. I grew up in India, of course. I uh, grew up uh, all over India. My dad was was a government employee for the for the government-owned oil company. So I was born in the north, went to school on the west coast, and, and pretty much lived in most of the major cities. Um, went, of course, for my graduation uh, studies, my, I, I went for my MBA to the Indian Institute of Management. Uh, I did my undergrad in accounting and economics at Bombay University, just on the West Coast. Um, and after working for a couple of years in consulting, I came to the US to do my PhD. So, you know, the first 23, 22 years of my life were in India, and then I've been in the US since 1984. So it's been, it's been a long time in the US. Yeah, so that's that's a little bit of my background. You also asked me, you know, what what shaped me, and I. It's kind of funny when I think about these questions. It's almost like you think, I don't want to sound morbid. It's like you know, what will people say about you on an obituary, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, well, not weird. <laughs> no. yeah. it's like what do you want to be? What do you want to say? Um, and I wish I could point to something you know profound that shaped me. Um, I want to just make a couple of observations. One very positive experience that shaped me very early in my life, and I didn't know at that time what it meant. Um, and one very negative experience, which also has had a profound impact. And I'll tell you why, it's, why today is particularly meaningful from that standpoint. So I will start with the, with the very positive one. Um, I was very lucky. Um, for those of us who come from backgrounds, uh, from some of the Asian countries, we know that teaching is stand and deliver, right? So you get lectured at. And when you're in school, you listen, you learn, you uh, used to call it mugging race. It's you just memorize and you regurgitate and you, you know, you, you talk if you do everything that you're supposed to do. And, and that was pretty much the environment they grew up in. I had two teachers, one a science teacher and one a language teacher. She taught me Hindi, which is India's national language. And this was, uh, I think, junior high, some, somewhere along in, in that time period. Um, I'm just trying to make it compatible to what you would understand here. Sixth grade, seventh grade. Um, and, and the Hindi teacher would assign us readings and she would ask us to think, so I, you know, again, I don't want to throw out these authors, but they're, the world, they're, they're some of the best known Hindi authors. Some of us may remember, they might be able to relate to them. Um, like Mahadevi Verma and Premchand and so on. I can see Asim is kind of nodding his head. These are complex writers. And for a sixth, seventh grader to read them 
was was no, you know, it was pretty challenging. And yet she would come into the class and instead of asking, giving us a set of questions and asking us to write the answers to show they had memorized, she would ask us to critically engage with the author and ask questions like, why do you think the story went this way? What was the author thinking? Um, and it just was so inspiring. And I used to sit there and think, wow, teaching can be fun, you know? And I kept in touch with my high school Hindi teacher for many, many years, even when I came to the US. And I told her later on, I said, when I became a teacher, I told myself, I wanna be a teacher like you. She's no more. Um, so she hasn't been around for, you know, but, but that was a very inspiring, and my science teacher was the same as well. I mean, she would, we would do these experiments and our, our school wasn't particularly rich. So we would do thought experiments. Sometimes we wouldn't have a lab equipment. So we would be like, pretend you have this chemical, pretend you have this. But she would take that pretense and make us really think and engage very critically. Um, I mentioned the negative shaping experience and, and I'll, I'll, I'll share that uh, because I think it's really important for me to kind of share that with all of you uh, because it's, it's, it's who I am. Um, today is July 30th and uh, it's, it's my, my dad's uh, 40th death anniversary, okay? So it's, he passed away in 1975, July 30th. And I deliberately picked July 30th when Samina gave me the dates because I thought what better way to honor my father's memory than talk about how he shaped me. I was only 15 when he passed away and he died in a freak medical accident. It is the kind of mistake that in the United States would have lawyers flocking to you to get you millions of dollars. Yet it was just, it was just a mistake that just turned all our lives upside down. And he was, if I can pick one human being in my life that left an everlasting impact, it was him. And he was brilliant, of course, unbiased, but it was not his brilliance that left an impact on me. He was one of the most compassionate people I had ever met in my life. And he was a self-made man. He lost his father when he was barely six months old. And growing up, I, it's, it's interesting how, you know, some things remain in your mind forever. And I remember there was never a weekend when dad would not be, he was a physicist, he was a geologist. I mean, he was just an amazing person and he was very good with his hands. And every weekend, I remember the same complaint from my mother. Why is this person outside our house with a broken radio? Well, because dad was offering to repair people's radios, tape recorders, anything that they could not afford. So our home, he was an engineer, and our home was always filled with people asking for his help to fix things, asking for help for their family. And he spent, when he was not prospecting for oil on behalf of his company, he was helping people. And he was just one of the most compassionate people. And he, he loved teaching. And so in his spare time, he would explain physics and chemistry, to the kids of the people who worked for him. Anyway, I can go on waxing about him. He, he was a poet, he was a singer, and he was a fantastic engineer. Uh, and most importantly, as I said, he really cared about people. And I was only about 15 when he passed away suddenly. And in terms of life's lessons, I mean, one, of course, you know, it was one of the most, was the most devastating um, thing that I've ever encountered. Uh, but from a development standpoint, you know, 
if, if you look at what skills you need to survive, I often tell my students, you know, the companies that survive long-term are not the smartest ones. They are not the strongest ones. They are the ones that are most adaptable. And today in the COVID era, we are all learning. If you want to survive, you better adapt. And I learned that lesson very early on, that you learn to be flexible, you learn to adapt, and you learn to become self-reliant. So I just wanted to share those two things with you because one, I think, in terms of the positive teachers that showed to me the meaning of critical thinking and how you can inspire people to go much beyond what is obvious and engage in a very you know, curious, critical manner with whatever materials you have. And the other person, of course, who not just gave me life, but kind of after 40 years to this day is still someone I can remember vividly because the kind of human being he was. And I think that's so important because, you know, today we are also, uh, today is the day that John Lewis funeral is taking place in Atlanta, right? And so I was looking at the, the words that ex-President Obama was talking about him uh, and the influence John Lewis had on the civil rights movement. Uh, and, and so, you know, the importance of having people who are compassionate, who really want to make the world a better place, I, I kind of feel proud that my dad in his 40 plus years had that impact on so many people who were lucky enough to know him. Yeah, so I don't know if that's what, you know, that's, that's helpful, but I wanted to share that personal information and, and want to thank Samina that I had the option to pick July 30th as a day to, you know, talk about myself. Yeah, thank you. That's so beautiful, Nandini. Thank you so much for sharing such a personal thought with us. I think that this is one of the things that's so nice about this format, um, maybe as opposed to some other ones. So. Um, and I think all of us appreciate that reminder that, you know, we can make such important differences in people's lives in different ways. So thank you. Um, next, we wanted to hear a little bit about what led to a career in academia, um, and particularly, you know, how you went from your undergraduate to your MBA and then, you know, worked and into this path. So how did you end up where you're at? Well, you're probably going to get a lot of unexpected answers, but here goes. I call myself the accidental academic. I had never, I never had intentions of doing a PhD, confession number one. Confession number two, when I came to do a PhD, I thought I would get the heck out of it as soon as I could get a job in the US. So what am I doing, right? So, you know, I had an MBA from a top school, I had a great job, and I just got married to, to the person I've been married to for the last 38 years, who's also an academic at USC. Um, and we were both working in Mumbai, I enjoyed my job thoroughly, but my husband wakes up one morning and he says, you know what, I'm bored. I think we should do a PhD. And I said, what? We're pretty happy. We just got married. You have a good job. I have a good job. What is this PhD stuff? He says, well, you know, he was in marketing and he said, I'm tired of selling pains. I, I feel like I'm not using my brain. So why don't we just try it? And I said, whatever. Okay, what do I need to do? He said, let's take the GMAT. I said, fine, we'll take the GMAT. I said, I'll, I'll come to the US on one condition. Can I just do an MBA and get a job there? And then, you know, you can do your PhD because I don't think I'm, I understand this research stuff. I really want to solve real world problems. So you can do your PhD and I will join a company who will employ me. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we came, we started doing a PhD. And I thought, this is pretty interesting. Wait, did you got to interject? Yes. Can I just yeah, so I mean, I would love this is just maybe personal curiosity, like when you taking the exam at the same time as a spouse, applying to PhD programs at the same time as a spouse, that's intense. 
uh, stress individually and collectively. Was there well, any sort of funny moment through that, it's, or it's you really funny? Well, it's well, it's funny you said that because I was trying to skip over that. I was oh, so dis I was so disinterested that I didn't even complete my applications properly. So we ended up with admissions to different schools because I forgot to send recommendation letters. I forgot. And when he discovered what happened, he said, you're really fighting tooth and nail to sabotage this, aren't you? So we don't have to go to the US. Well, you know, I had my only sibling was in India. My mom was in India. I loved my job. I had great consulting assignments. All my friends were in India. It's like, why would I want to go to the US and do what? Anyway, so we ended up in two different schools. And then we spent the first semester <laughs> trying to get together. And that's how we ended up in Pittsburgh because he was at Wharton and my application at Wharton was not complete. So I went to Pittsburgh um, and then Wharton said they would admit me. But when I went to Philadelphia, I just didn't like that neighborhood. It, it freaked me out. And so I told him, okay, you want me to be married to you? You come to Pittsburgh. Not that Pittsburgh eventually turned out, you know, that turned out to be problematic as well from a safety standpoint. And he transferred to Carnegie Mellon. So he quit Wharton and he came to Carnegie Mellon and I continued in Pittsburgh. So that's how we ended up after six months because I had frankly dropped the ball when it came to completing my application. So that's yeah. that's how I ended well, up. Thanks for sharing that. I think that, you know, COVID is, yeah, no, I think everyone's struggling even more to balance career and, you know, a couple of things now. So any, this is good to hear that it worked out. So, okay. So, um, what program did you apply to at Pittsburgh and how did you choose that one given your total disinterest in <laughs> you know I had a finance background so I applied for a PhD in finance um, and I ended up I, I started doing a PhD in finance at the University of Pittsburgh and my very first assignment was was in, was in the finance professor and I didn't like it I found it boring and I said, why? I said, I looked at some dissertations and I said, a lot of the work seems to be just under explaining why the stock price fluctuates by 0. 0.0001. I said, is this, this is finance in the US? And I said, yeah, this is finance. And I said, yeah, I don't like it. And I found that the strategy group was very vibrant. You know, it, it, this is the mid 80s when the University of Pittsburgh strategy group was really vibrant. It had a great group of uh, PhD students, the faculty were very active. I started talking to them and I, and I said, this is really interesting. I, I want to go into strategy. So after a semester in finance, I just changed my major. But the advantage though of starting in finance was I had a minor in econometrics. So I had a very strong quantitative background, which later on turned out to be really good because I didn't change my minor. I continued with econometrics and statistics as my minor, changed my majors to strategy. And I just loved it because I just loved the whole field of strategy. I love that we were asking the question, which is, I think, central to the field of strategy. Why do some firms outperform others? And I still had a little consultant at the back of my mind asking, like, what can you say to improve firm performance? So, so it was just very, very compatible. You know, this is, this is again, interesting, right? Because now if you, if, if, if you were to admit someone into a PhD program and their answer to the question, why do you want to do a PhD is because, oh, this is an interesting consulting question, you'll get booted out of the program, right? would be like, it, it's, it's, it's a no-no. But back in the 80s, you could actually honestly say, I'm really interested in why some firms outperform others, and I want to look at it more rigorously. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a background, yeah. Well, I think it helps us connect the dots between, like, your work experience and then how relevant your research is to a lot of managers, so that's great. Um, 
So given you were, you know, transferring between these programs, um, you were at this vibrant strategy group, how did your dissertation research question come about? How did you narrow it down? How did you know it was the one, as it were? You know, again, it's, I, I think, again, you know, I don't use the word accident, but we all agree that things happen by serendipity. So my dissertation advisor, uh, John Grant, you know, who is who's a Harvard DBA, a great advisor, working with a lot of companies in the Pittsburgh area, asked me after my qualifying exam, I said, looking around, thinking about a topic, he said, I'm going to go to this local utility company, which is the largest investor-owned electric utility in Pittsburgh, uh, and I'm going to talk to the CEO, do you want to come along? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, and, you know, this was, it was, it was an interesting era where the Supreme Court had just upheld the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act, which was passed in 1982. Uh, and in the mid 80s, there were challenges to that and the Supreme Court had, up, you know, had uh, it basically deregulated the electric utility industry. And when I was in this meeting with the CEO and with my advisor, it struck me that the company really did not have a clue how they were going to respond to deregulation. And there was, the conversation revealed that there was real lack of understanding about the implications of deregulation and whether they should adapt, how they should adapt and so on. And that piqued my interest. I started asking the question, why is it that some firms respond proactively and others have to see significant performance failures before they start responding? And Pitt already had a few dissertations on strategic change and adaptation. And so there was a history and you know, my advisor was very comfortable in that area. He knew a lot about strategic change. Um, and then as I was reading up you know, after my meeting with the CEO, as I was reading up on the on the utility industry, I realized there were 108 investor-owned utilities in the US. And I could actually go and look at each one of these companies and study how they were responding and use a large sample survey methodology. 108 was a large sample those days. Now it would be like a pilot, right? Uh, so it's, you know, I've come a long way. Now my platform-based market data that I'm working on has, you know, I can see my co-author Alex Wang is here. Uh, you know, we have millions of observations, right? So I've gone from studying 108 utilities to platform-based markets where you have millions of observations. So we've come a long way. But that's how my interest got picked. Again, it was picked in a very practical, pragmatic, tell me how can I help this company kind of way. And it, it, it turned out to be, and, and I was fortunate enough to win a fellowship from AACSB. So they funded my dissertation. So I was able to travel all over the country and go talk to CEOs. So I was in California many times talking to PG&D CEOs. And it was very interesting. In the mid 80s, I still remember the conversations with the California companies. And the CEOs would collectively make statements like, this is going to go away. There is no way we're going to deregulate transmission lines. There will be blackouts. In, you know, there will be a revolt against this. And none of that happened, right? The industry did really get deregulated. And to this day, they're struggling with that. So it was very interesting to see what the, how the early perceptions of, of, the, of the CEOs shaped their responses and their heterogeneity in their strategy. So that's how I got, got into my dissertation. And then, of course, I linked that later on with compensation systems and you know, whether companies that tied the manager's compensation to performance were more likely to change than others. So interesting. I don't know. I think I might reframe this as a series of serendipitous events, maybe not accidental, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. both ways yeah. to adapt and take advantage of what comes your way. Um, so, you know, that was your dissertation. 
you tell us how your research interests started evolving into the CEO succession and those things and how sort of over time they continue to evolve? Well, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> okay, I'm not going to say accident, but here's what happened with my dissertation. Remember I said I interviewed CEOs, I ran all over the country, I had this wonderful survey. I got rejection after rejection after rejection for my dissertation papers, all almost the same criticism, which is common method variance. Okay. And I thought I had used all the methodological tools to overcome that. But the fact that the dissertation data was mainly based on survey somehow was just not enabling me to crack the journals. And for those of us you here who are junior faculty starting off your career or you, you know, still trying to build your career, um, I was an, you know, just a little aside. I thought I was one of the few people that struggled to publish my dissertation research. My first paper for my dissertation did not come out until four years after I graduated. And even that paper used only half of the data from the dissertation. The remaining half was archival data that I collected from published sources. And that's how I started thinking about compensation. My dissertation had nothing to do with compensation. It was all perception, strategic change, adaptation, and so on. And as I kept running into my, my very first paper was rejected by AMJ after I think three revisions, I forget. It was, it was traumatic, right? It went through three revisions. You know, there was a change in editors and I think, you know, I don't wanna get into any gory details, but it, it, was, it was very, very disheartening. And I thought, you know, I still remember I got the third rejection and I told my husband, it's all your fault. I'm bright, I'm accomplished, you brought me into a career where I'm just falling apart. So I'm just going to quit this. And he said, you know, why don't you try it one more time? Like, yeah, right. Do you think I'm a masochist? I'm going to take this paper now and go to some other journal. And it's very, it's funny. Uh, years later, you know, when I became associate editor at AMJ, when I shared it with the first person, I was going to share it with my husband. And he looks at me and he says, hmm, that's interesting. Isn't that the journal you absolutely hated? and you were going to quit academia for because they rejected your paper after three revisions, why don't you say no now? Which is very funny because the reason I'm sharing that with you is it's, you know, my career trajectory is just, I think, typical of so many people, right? I mean, you get these early knocks, kind of lose confidence. You think I'm really, what am I doing? Why am I in this business? So anyway, the way I bounced back from that was I said, you know what, there's something fundamentally I have to fix something here, which is I really believe this data. I think I have a story to tell, but I'm not going to get through those through through the reviewers unless I can overcome whatever problems are being perceived in this data. So I went back to the drawing board and I painstakingly collected objective data from archival sources to triangulate all the perceptual data. And in the process, I stumbled into the compensation data and I found something very interesting which is that the propensity for strategic change was much higher among firms that had implemented incentive-based plans for their senior managers. And the only way I could code that incentive-based plan was to go into the archival data, read all those microfiches. You know, those were the days when you didn't have all this available in a database. You actually had to download all those and go into the library and download the microfiche, 10K, all those statements and code them. It took me six months to code it because again, uh, USC and Marshall weren't as resource rich then as they are now. So I had no RA, no TA, nothing. So I spent six months doing it. And at the end of it, 
there was something new and interesting which piqued my interest in CEO compensation and, and started a whole other stream of work on CEO succession as well. I found that firms that did not do well, there was a rapid succession. And these people were you know, being replaced by outsiders. So it started all kinds of questions in terms of the firms were changing, they were changing the incentive plans, they were replacing their top management teams and a whole body of research emerged from that. And then I started looking for collaborators to work with because I had all these ideas. And I said, let's start looking at this. But interestingly, I think I probably overreacted, but that was my first and last survey-based work. All my work since then has been archival. <laughs> After 30 years, I'm still now, when PhD students come and work with me, if they say, we want to actually go interview managers and do a survey, I'm like, ah, I'm not your person. You'll get all your papers rejected. Show me the hard data. Let's get archival data. Let's work with this. So that's just a little bit about how you can be, you can kind of overreact to it. I, I still think it's very important to talk to managers. I do that when I did my work on the shark's dilemma with Louis Diestre, we actually went and talked to managers about, you know, biotech firms and pharma firm companies. It was very insightful. Um, my work with Alex, when, uh, you know, which was mainly Alex's dissertation on platform-based markets, we spent a lot of time in the Bay Area talking to developers and talking to uh, companies there, and it really gives a lot of qualitative insights. So the last decade, I think I've kind of overcome my antipathy towards the real world and I'm building my qualitative skills again. But I have to thank my PhD students for that because they kind of told me, you know, we, we know you like archival data, but we really think we should talk to people so we can figure out what's happening. Yeah. Great. Um, I think that's a good motto for, you know, just because it's been rejected everywhere else. So let's keep going. So I think a lot of us have stories like that. Um, so as you're talking about all these many different interests you've had and the different ways you started um, studied them, what do you think your major contributions have been so far? What are the things you're most proud of with your research? You know, I'm sure when you've had other speakers, they could, many of them can point to, here's my seminal piece, right? Here's the thing that defined my research agenda. Here is my contribution. Frankly, I can't, I can't point to a single piece and say, that's my contribution, right? I, I really can't. And in fact, I, I th I've been thinking about this and it, it came to the fore when I was writing my personal statement for my tenure. Um, and think, what is it that I contributed for? You know, what am I known for? You were, you were very gracious when you put up my citation and so on. But you also saw the number of topics in there, right? Um, so broadly speaking, I think what I contributed to really is, is, the, is, is what I call um, some insights into how and why top managers matter the strategic human capital, you know, the antecedents uh, and consequences of variations in human capital. And I've looked at human capital in terms of CEOs, uh, their role in strategic change in compensation systems, the role of CEO knowledge, boards of directors, their knowledge in new product introductions, um, you know, in the pharma industry, the role of board knowledge uh, in terms of strategic alliances, so I think if I were to define my contribution from a scholarly standpoint, I would say, you know, most of my work can, can fit into that category. You know, my most highly cited paper is actually not an empirical paper. It's the paper work I did with Gretchen Spritzer, who's an OB person. Gretchen is at, you know, is, is a professor at Michigan. She was a colleague at UIC and we wrote a theory paper in AMR on a multi-lens perspective into strategic change. Um, and again, you know, that paper is the most highly cited. 
uh, it has spurred a lot of dissertations. It's led to a lot of, you know, empirical work. Um, so I think, you know, my, my contribution is, is not a single paper or here's, you know, and again, I want to be honest and say that I, I have been influenced by who I work with. Um, so some of my early work with my co-author Anthea Zhang at, at Rice was on topics which are very, which I think I kind of, you know, was already interested in CEO succession and compensation and so on. Uh, but I have worked with others and, you know, other PhD students uh, whose research interests have been very different. So Luis Diesue was at IE um, and is now a, an associate editor at AMJ. You know, Luis and I, Luis, Luis came to my office and he said, you know, I want to work with you, but I really don't like the stuff you work on. I mean, he's, a, he's from Spain. He speaks his mind. I don't know if Luis is on the call, but this is exactly how he said. He said, I've got a lot of ideas and I want to work with you. But here's what I'm thinking about. And so we published stuff on environmental relatedness, you know, big pharma, strategic alliances. And finally, I think Louis realized that, you know, he should be, he should do something that I can actually contribute to. So we actually did work on corporate board knowledge and new pharma introduction. Um, a lot of my current work is with Alex, Alex uh, Wang, who, you know, who's my, who's my PhD student and is at OSU now. It's all on platform-based markets and we're, uh, asking, I think, some really very interesting, profound questions, and I was struck by how important this is when yesterday there were hearings on Capitol Hill, where the four big CEOs were talking about, you know, is there, how are they not preventing competition, right? Like, they're really not creating monopolies and so on. And one of the research questions, Alex and I, along with, uh, uh, you know, um, some other uh, co-authors we're looking at is, what is the effect of acquisitions on entry into various markets in the mobile app industry? We're looking at iOS platform and we're looking at, so for example, you know, if Facebook were to make an acquisition, which they did when they acquired WhatsApp, uh, does that increase entry, deter entry? You know, it's, it's a very simple question that's been examined, but we have now access to this wonderful database where we can track every acquisition. We can look at the antecedents of the acquisition, the consequences in terms of market entry. That's not something that I have worked on by myself, but you know, Alex is very interested in that. He's just spent years and years building this database. Um, and we have a stream of work coming out of that. In fact, one of my co-authors is one of your colleagues, Ben Hallen and Alex and I are collaborating on, you know, work in that area as well. So, so I think, you know, you asked about contributions. So I'm going to reframe that. If you ask me what my real contribution is, I want to go back to what I'm most passionate about, which is, mentoring, which is, you know, I think I see my role much more as facilitating the intellectual development of so many others and making sure that their ideas come to fruition and they succeed and they do really well. And that is what keeps me going 30 years, 34 years after graduating. When I graduated in 1988, we are now 2020. I can publish that one more paper, right? I could have published a few more papers. But I think after around the time I got tenure, I, I, I asked this question. I said, what do I really want to be doing for the rest of my academic career? Do I want to keep digging into what I think is my work? Or do I want to kind of work with people who have great ideas who can be stimulated and helped? And even if I don't work with them, like I, you know, I have mentored faculty who are not my co-authors. They are my colleagues. Many of them have, are not at USC, they're other places. But what gives me the most joy at the end of the day 
is when someone calls me and says, hey, I made tenure, or I just got promoted, and you said something which really changed the way I looked at this research. And I think that, that, that is what I would say is my contribution, is when I think about that I've had this opportunity to work with great PhD students, to work with great co-authors, to comment on papers that I've never been a co-author on, to write innumerable tenure letters, tenure's you know, promotion letters, and then celebrate the success of all these people. I think that is what I would like to think of my contribution. And, and I will continue in this field as long as I feel like it can continue to have the positive impact. Because think about it, and they're all paying it forward, by the way. This is the multiplicative effect, right? You mentor two people, each one mentors two, and you can pretty much see how this spreads, right? And how many minds are out there. Because individually, you know, I'm not that brilliant to begin with, and individually I can work 24 hours a day. What am I gonna solve, right, working alone? But now you have these hundreds of people, thousands of students around the world who are all working on interesting problems. So, you know, it's, it's a little different way of answering the question, but I think that's, that's how I would like to frame it. I think that's really inspirational, and it, it, it touches on a theme that I think a lot of us, especially looking at the people on this call, are, you know, how did you decide that's what you wanted to do, sort of, post-tenure, you know, what were your, did you work with students pre-tenure, you know, how did you kind of figure out this is what you wanted to do? I think a lot of us are, you know, recently post-tenure and trying to figure out what's next and, you know, what we would hope our impact might be in a few years. You know, I, I, I was working with students even before, before tenure. I co-chaired a dissertation as, as an assistant professor. So I found it very early on that that was really what got me very excited. You know, the hours of, sitting in a room with a PhD student, you know, going back and forth and then seeing the bulb go off and then they come back and say, you know what, we had this discussion, I did this, and I think you're wrong, and I'm going to do it this way. And it's, it's really interesting to see the, the growth, right? And I think that I, I felt that very early on. And it wasn't just PhD students. The reason I love teaching so much is, you know, I've taught thousands of students. I've taught at all levels, undergrad, grad, exec ed. Uh, and uh, one reason I don't, I don't have a Facebook account, even though my daughter works at Facebook, is I don't want to be on Facebook. But I'm on LinkedIn, and I get hundreds of messages. Yes, last night I had a message from, from a student from 2004, and he emailed me out of the blue, and he said he's become the CEO of his company, and he said in his interview he had to answer a question which was very similar to a question we had in the case discussion, and he nailed it. 2004, and I just got goosebumps. You know, thinking about so, so you know, through teaching the MBAs, the undergrads, and teaching PhD students, I realized, you know, it took me back to my classroom, right? Way back when my my Hindi teacher made me go home and read that book again, all over again, because I couldn't answer the question. Why did he write it the way he did? Because it was such a profound question. And so I I, I always knew that as a teacher, right, you had this profound effect on someone, that you could shape their life forever. And if they succeeded, then it was your success, right? So it, it, you know, so when, when my student calls me and says, you know, that person got tenure or someone that I had just talked to for a few hours and I wrote a letter for them and they, they get promoted and they feel really good about it, it's, it's payback, right? It's, it's, you feel this sense of accomplishment. And so I think it, it, it's always been most meaningful to me. To, to engage in that in that capacity. And I would say after tenure, I mean, it's even better, right? I mean, now those, I can tell you, 
when a paper I've written with a PhD student gets rejected, it hurts far more than when it's a paper that I have just, you know, that I've been the lead author on. Because it really hurts you much more to see someone that you want desperately to succeed. So it makes me even more engaged and make sure that this thing gets done properly. Um, that's such a nice way of thinking about, you know, the, I don't know, how our teaching and our research actually can help people. And um, I know that you're an especially inspiring example of doing all that. Do you have any tips or suggestions for people that are working with students? So I love that you suggested that we celebrate their successes more than our own. What else work, has worked well? I mean, as I think about all your students and their incredible research, clearly, you know, you've, you've developed some good skill. I think in addition to selecting really bright students, obviously. You know, um, it's, it's, that's interesting because this is actually a conversation I've, I've had with my students over the years. Um, and I will distill it down to three things that I, that I work for me that I often tell my students, especially when they're going through a downturn, because this, this career, we all know, there'll be upturns, there'll be downturns. And how you react to the downturns, you know, shapes how you will survive or not. So the first tip I always have for my students, which helped me in my darkest days, was enjoy the process. You know, if you don't enjoy the process, this is not a career that you're going to enjoy. Because it's, by definition, there will be, quote unquote, more failures than successes. So you have to celebrate, and this is nothing profound, but you have to celebrate the process. You have to really enjoy the journey. If the destination is what you want, well and good. But if the destination is not what you want, at least the journey would be enjoyable. So that's really important. The second lesson that I apply to my life, which I tell all my PhD students always, always prioritize, um, is life is too short to be put on hold because you're pursuing a career. So, you know, how often have we talked to someone who says, I would love to do this, but I need to get tenure. I would love to do this, but I need to get promoted to full. I would love to do this, but, but, but. And guess what? Life goes on. And it's not worth it. it you know, it is very important, but it's one part of your life. It's not your entire life. So to the extent that you can think of this as a marathon, not a sprint, and pace yourself, and make sure you have enough time, room in your life for everything else that matters, whether it's your family, friends, fun, doing the things that you would do if you were not an academic, do those things. And if it means you're gonna publish a few, a smaller set of papers, so be it. If it means you're not gonna be the best known person in your field, so be it. Maybe that's what gives you happiness. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But that's not who I was, right? Remember, I was accidental academic. I came onto this kind of reluctantly, and so I was going to play it on my own terms and conditions. Of course, I wanted to do great things. I wanted to be editor, and I wanted to do all this stuff. But I was not going to put the rest of my life on hold. In fact, my husband used to keep laughing, you know, used to keep teasing me about it. He said, you're not only the accidental academic, you're going to get tenure accidentally, considering that you're doing all this other stuff. Because I love to cook. So no matter what, I cook every evening, right? Um, and, you know, it was important to me because I enjoy making food and I enjoy eating what I make because I usually am very critical about other people's food and I don't like eating out and I don't like food from restaurants. So I spent a heck of a lot of my time cooking. 
Um, and many people would consider that a total waste of time. It's like, why aren't you working instead of spending hours cooking? Like, well, I want to do it because I enjoy it. So, so the point is, you know, and I had kids when I was, my, my daughter was born when I was in the PhD program. I was the first, I think I was the first or second woman in the PhD program um, to have a baby while in the program. And then I started my tenure track and the year I started my tenure track, I decided to have another baby. And I remember both the times, some very well-meaning people who had my interests at heart said, not a good idea. This is going to be it. You're going to pay for this. I'm like, okay, good. I never wanted to be an academic anyway, so maybe I will quit. So it's, you know, I think it's, it's, it's good to kind of bring some level of detachment so that you actually don't put the rest of your life on hold. And, you know, the viewpoint may be different from some people. I've, I've heard people say things that you have to give, give this career all you have, it's all or nothing. And if you get distracted, you know, when you work, work like crazy. You know, when I work, I have, I don't think of anything else. I'm 100% focused on that. But when I'm not working, I'm doing other stuff. This is not important. It can wait. I think it's really useful advice. <laughs> I think especially with, you know, our cell phones and ubiquity of different like notifications is getting harder. But um, yeah. that kind of focus is clearly um, something that's really beneficial um, to our research too. Um, what are questions that you still see that are interesting to you that maybe you're thinking about, maybe you think that might be possibilities for other scholars to pick up that you'd like to see done in a certain way? Um, you know, it's, that's, as I said, as I confessed earlier, I kind of stopped thinking long time ago. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I let my, let my co-authors think for me, but, but the most interesting questions really come from, you know, I think the brightest, youngest minds in the field. And I, I, I always say if, if you have a good co-author to work with, especially a junior co-author, you can be guaranteed it's a good idea. I want to go back to what I said a bit earlier, something that's been somewhat frustrating to me as, as, a, as a senior strategy scholar, um, which is I think over time, I, I, this, the strategy field especially has, has strayed away from the question which defined the field, which is a very simple question. Why do some firms outperform others? And that's what made me excited about the field, that it was asking a very phenomenon driven question to which we could bring rigor and examine that. Um, and I think to, there are some good things that have happened, which is we have become more theoretical, which is excellent, which is very important. We are bringing economics and sociology and psychology and so on. But I think there's a, there's, sometimes I feel like the pendulum is swung to the other extreme, where the methodology and the theoretical framework seems to eclipse the importance of the question. Now, I don't think rigor and relevance are necessarily at odds with each other. To the contrary, I think you should be doing research that is rigorous and relevant. But because data is so ubiquitous, because large data is so available, I think we spend far less time thinking about why is this important? How is this going to help an organization do well? What real life problem is this solving? We are spending far less time. So I'm not answering your question directly in terms of what questions should people study. But I'm saying let's get back to what defined the strategy field. Because if you don't do that, and I have the same advice, by the way, for my organization behavior colleagues. 
you know, at the heart of organization behavior is organization. And so if you forget that you're answering questions that enable organizations to become more effective, you will be nothing else but a subfield in the hundreds of subfields that define psychology. So get, let's get back to what makes organizations effective. So, so that's my pet peeve is we have the tools, we have the techniques, we have the theories, let's harness them to get back to answering the fundamental question. Because if we don't do that, we will lose our identity in terms of what defines strategy. Strategy is not a subfield of economics. It's not a subfield of sociology. It's not a subfield of psychology. It's a field in itself. That's how it was born. And we have to work hard to make sure our identity doesn't get blurred because we are not going to become better economists than the economists. We're not going to become better sociologists than the sociologists. But we will answer this question much better than anyone else. And that's why I'm so very interested in what Alex and I are looking at now, which is we're asking a fundamental question and strategy. How do firms use acquisitions to create monopoly power? Does it actually deter entry, right? And it's great that we have big data, but it's not the big data that's really getting me worked up and uh, you know, awake at night. It's a fundamental question because you know, can we really answer that question in a very compelling way in a context, the mobile app market, which is economically so huge, and think about the profound impact it would have if we can, through very careful empirical analysis, demonstrate, yes, it deters entry, or no, it doesn't, and the profound impact it would have on something that has got national, international significance, right? So ask the big questions and use the data to answer that. And if some theoretical perspective helps you, by all means, but ask the interesting questions. And never forget that that's what distinguishes the field of strategy from all these other disciplines. And that's, you, you got me talking about my pet peeve in terms of, you know, what kind of questions should we be asking? But I think, and I'm, and I'm glad to see that there is a part of the field that's alive and thriving, but it's also, you know, I've sat in a lot of job talks, I must say in the last 30 years and over the time I've seen, you know, it, it going more and more in the direction of uh, how do you address uh, this problem or that methodology? And when we take a step back and say, really, so what? Why is this question important? You have a great methodology, but I really don't find the question interesting. That's not good. Uh, thank you. I feel like you've given us the sound clip for the defense of STR and strategy. So that yeah. strategy yeah. is not, you know, I think we need to somehow put that on the website. So we don't know if it's possible, but it's fantastic. Um, and I think it's a good reminder for all of us, you know, why we sort of exist as a community and sort of what brings us together in terms of our interests. So thank you. Um, so, um, Nadine, one thing I wanted to ask um, before we turn over to other people is, you know, you have done, in addition to mentoring, an extraordinary amount of sort of service to your institution, <laughs> especially. Can you tell us sort of how you see that fitting in and, you know, has that created this? I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just laughing because July 1st, I, I was born again. On July 1st, I completed a three-year term as the Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs. Right, so congratulations. <laughs> I, you know, I'm so excited talking research and teaching because I can tell you those three years were, were interesting years. Um, I learned a lot. Would I ask others to do it? Um, maybe not. It's... To me, again, it, you know, you, you may ask me, why did I do it? It was a three-year term. It was very intense. Uh, and USC went through a lot of stuff at that time, uh, quite a bit of negative stuff. So being in a leadership position was not particularly 
helpful. The reason I decided to do it, a couple of things. When I had been asked to be a faculty lead and do things several times, you know, when you've been at the same institution for a very long time, I started my career at Marshall, as I said. Um, you, you learn to, you, you learn a lot about the institution and you become very valuable to the institution for institutional knowledge and so on. I had served on tenure committees, I had done a lot of things. So it was, that was an obvious choice. And I kept saying, no, no, no. And this, when I decided to say yes, I said yes for a couple of reasons. One was, I asked myself this question. Instead of saying, why me? You know, why not me, right? I have been at this institution for, I've gotten a lot here. I got tenure here. I got became a full professor here. I've taken a lot of resources from the institution. And I have done so because others have stepped into these roles and created a strong institution. I had a lot of ideas in terms of how we can make it a better place for students, better place for faculty. And to quote one of my favorite, or probably the person I admire the most, Mahatma Gandhi, be the change you want to see. So this might sound almost, you know, it's trite, but it dawned on me that instead of saying things like, why can't the faculty dean do this? For example, I've always been very interested in rewarding research that's both rigorous and relevant. And I used to get upset that we didn't have an award for research that's had the most practical impact. And during my tenure, we launched that award. You know, so now we actually have a research, and I also was able to get it endowed, uh, for research that's been published in top journals and so on, but which has had significant impact in the world of practice. So I had ideas on how we could do things differently, could do better. And being in that position, I knew would give me the ability to do that. It did take a lot of energy, it took a lot of time, and it's not easy. And it was three years of full-time service to the institution. Um, I learned a lot. I have to say that it was, it told me a lot about myself as a person, as a leader. Uh, it also told me, boy, I love research and teaching much, much more than administration. But I feel good that I was able to give these three years to my institution. I hired some fantastic faculty. I was able to work with great department chairs. And in the last three years, we've done a lot of interesting things, which I think puts Marshall in a much better place. Uh, but the other reason I did it is I remember my first instinct was to say no. And I, I talked to my daughter, who's, who's an attorney, and I said, you know, I don't feel like doing this. And she said, mom, if you say no, what message are you sending to me and others that you want to step away from a leadership position? She said, you always told me, say yes, go for the leadership positions, put yourself out there. And she said, you're chickening out because you think this is going to be difficult because you'll have interpersonal issues, you'll have to deal with difficult faculty. Come on. And I reflected on that. And I said, and my granddaughter had was, you know, had just been born and she said, and she's a girl. And again, not to play up the female gender card here, but I will. There had been no female faculty dean ever at USC Marshall. And, you know, at least my daughter said that and I spoke to a couple of my junior female colleagues who were very thrilled when they heard this and they said, please do it. Um, and it was something special to be the first woman faculty dean. And by the way, my successor is also a woman. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of interesting. I would like to think that I kind of paved the way for that, but in many ways it is someone has to be the first one there, right? Um, and so I will say all those things. One is give back to the institution. 
be the change you want to see. And if you really want to push others to take leadership positions, whether it's your junior faculty or your daughter or anyone else, and you want to be a role model, just go do it. It's tough. It's hard. Being an administrator, being a faculty dean is, is a position with very little authority and a lot of responsibility to learn a lot about yourself. And I can say that I've come out of it much stronger and I have a great, greater sense of you know, fulfillment that I have done something really useful and meaningful. So, yeah. But I'm looking forward to just anonymity as a faculty member and getting all those revise and resubmits out of the way. Hey, that, um, you know, Nadia, I, I think you are a trailblazer in so many ways. And I think we're all so lucky that we get to learn from you um, in a lot of formats, but especially this one. So thank you so much with your, for your generosity you, on so many fronts. Um, so before I turn over um, to questions from the audience, um, if possible, I'd like everyone to turn on their cameras right now and we're going to take a group photo. So when everyone's cameras on, we're all going to yeah, fix your hair, whatever you need to do, look at your camera and get closer. If you're still there, I can turn them on. It's sort of a fun thing that the division has instituted as part of these. So. And it's also kind of fun to see actual human faces and not just black squares sometimes. So thank you. Okay, so I think Eunice is going to take the photo for us when she's around. I'll put if I count to three okay, well. so that um, we all know when to smile. All right. So one, two, three. Awesome. Thank you. Um, all right, so we're going to start the Q&A portion from the audience. Um, we have some questions, so Eunice and I, that we can get going with. Should we, do we start with the fun questions first, or do we save those for later? Okay, sorry. We're saving those for later. Um, one thing I'll note is I apologize. I, my computer, for some reason, is not accepting a charge, so I'm going to be switching to my phone in a few minutes, um, which means, Eunice, I might need a few help with asking or noticing um, audience Question. So I'll let you know if that happens, but just to throw a flag that. So um, if you want to have a question, if you want to put it into the chat to start or raise your hand and then I can turn it over to you. Um, there's a few questions that have come in um, as we are registering people and maybe I'll start with one of those. Um, so one question that came in here, I think is one that is, you know, something we all struggle with is how should one choose co-authors and do you have any advice on managing collaborations effectively? That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to give an answer which may not be the very conventional answer. I have, I have never worked with someone that I don't like, which is a funny answer, you know. Now, what do I mean by that? You, you want to pick collaborators who are complementary skills, you know, with, who have got the interest and the passion and the ability to get things done, all that is fine. But for me, it's very important to feel real respect for the person I work with. And so for me, the value compatibility is, is very important. You know, how they treat the work, how they treat one another, um, and so on. So for me, those the collaborations become very, very personal, intense collaborations. I can't switch on and off. So I'm, I'm in my PhD students' lives 100%. I know their kids' names, I know what they're doing, I know what their challenges are, um, and they know they can pick up the phone and call me if they had a fight with the spouse. No, they don't, but sometimes they do. Um, but it's, it's really important for me to be very 
closely connected and have a lot of mutual trust. So trust, respect, respect not just for the intellectual abilities, which is a given, but also respect for how they deal with the work, you know, uh, the level of trust we have, um, compatibility in values. Um, that, that's really important. For example, I cannot work with someone who says, well, you know, I think if you just do this, the review will be happy. We don't really need to do this. No, you know, I can't work with someone who will cut corners, right? For me, it's, it's like, have you really done the best, even assuming that this is going to not go anywhere? Um, and, and, and frankly, I've had, I've had early in my career, I've had, I've worked with, I started projects with some, someone who, I, I spent a lot of time collecting the data as a junior faculty member. Uh, and at, at the time that we were ready to write the paper, I just realized that there was a cynicism in this person that I just could not deal with. But I was not going to, I, did, I don't like, let's play the game for the game's sake. So it's, it's, you know, life is too short, the career reputation is very, goes far beyond that one paper. You have to feel good about the work. So I think that's really important, you know, to feel real trust and, and respect and, and, and have values. And I, you know, it's, that's really important. So I, and it, because you work very closely, right? It's not just getting the paper. You have all, you, know, you want to work with them more than once. You have some challenging things that you have to deal with. So it's, it's really important to have respect and trust and be honest and be genuine. Um, and that's really important. Um, so, and I've been very fortunate. I mean, I've had a dozen collaborators and I still keep in touch with all of them. You know, we share, I, I, not that I'm working with each one of them right now, but each one of those have been very fulfilling collaborations. Yeah. Um, so a follow-up question here would be, you know, as a networks researcher, I'm also think, often thinking about how ties are sticky. And so when things seem to have not gone well, do you have any tips on dissolving a collaboration in a way that allows you to not sabotage your career? I think that's a big fear for a lot of junior scholars is that, you know, if they sever the tie or don't do it, it's going to be bad for them. And then just administrative note, I'm switching to my phone. So, you know, if I'm making questions in the chat, I can still see it, but you can chime in that. You know, that's, that's, that's a really difficult question to answer. And I think I probably answered it in my prior answer because the only way I could dissolve the collaboration was to walk away from the project. And that was a very difficult decision to make because as a junior person, I'd already invested tons of time into that. And it was a very difficult decision, but I also understand the concept of sunk costs. So, you know, if you want to pursue, I could have pursued the project on my own perhaps, but it would have caused all kinds of problems with the more senior person. And so I made the hard decision saying, okay, I'm just going to walk away from it. And it's difficult, but it was much better for my peace of mind and my unwillingness to compromise on what I thought was really important values. Uh, so I think we have to make those tough decisions. Uh, I, I do genuinely believe that you can be honest with yourself and your collaborator. As a junior faculty, we often feel scared. But I think even as a junior faculty, I have to say, most senior people are more reasonable than you think they are. And if you can genuinely explain the situation and why you don't want to do something, I would assume that most people would, would be reasonable about it. But it, you may also need to make some tough choices. Okay? Like in this case, my tough choice was 
continue, plot along, maybe get a paper, but lose nights of sleep and really feel horrible about it, or just close it, put it into the drawer and say, I'm done. And it did set me back. It was, it, was, it was a year's worth of work that I had to walk away from. But looking back, that was a good decision I made. It also said, told me what mattered to me. And I was much more careful picking collaborators, much, much more careful picking collaborators. Emily, you're muted. Emily, you're muted. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me now? Sorry yes. about that. Yes, I again. actually have a bug for teaching that's here right now that I should have held up for myself. Since you're muted. <laughs> uh, so I was saying that I noticed in the chat that uh, Rich McAdock had several good questions. I'm not sure which one you want to jump in with first, uh, Rich, but go right ahead. Okay, sure. Um, so, <clears throat> hi, Nandini. How are you doing? I'm good. Good to see you. Likewise. Uh, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, so the question I had was, uh, what, do you, what do you think are the most important unanswered questions in the field of strategy at this point? <laughs> wow. That's... <laughs> what do we not know that we really should have known by now? Is there something like sustainable competitive advantage? Is that a mirage? And well, that's definitely something that our students keep asking, right? And we like to think that we can tell them how to create and sustain competitive advantage. Um, and I think that's still a question that we haven't answered. And I don't think we ever will answer. But, and, and the other question of course is that do the rules of competition change in the post COVID era, especially as we move more and more towards you are in it for yourself labor model, right? With the Ubers and the Airbnbs. So I think there are some very interesting questions that are very old questions, Richard, mm -hmm. but which we can ask again. And that we, we still have not answered properly. We still haven't answered properly, yeah. And I, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite questions is, is strategy anything more than trying to create a monopoly and hoping that no one else will discover it's a monopoly so that, so that the feds don't come after you. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a question that I'm, I'm really intrigued by, especially given what's happening with our, the four big CEOs right. who are all standing up there and saying, no, we really don't want to stifle competition. We really want to create consumer welfare. We welcome competition. And yet the kind of strategic moves they make are anything but welcoming competition. Now, if empirically we can kind of tease it out in a convincing manner, that would be phenomenal, right? And also, what advice do we give them? How do you create monopoly power without being hauled in by antitrust? Mm -hmm. Because that is sustainable competitive advantage, right? I mean, it's so anyway, so that's at least that's how I launch my strategy sessions is what do you think strategy is? Is it sustainable competitive advantage? And without being a monopoly, can you ever sustain that? Right. Okay. Any other unanswered questions? You think? Well, I, 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 you know, I also want to go back to the question of leadership, right? I mean, what you know, again, this is something I've been trying to work on, and I think there are a lot of unanswered questions. The upper echelons' perspective: Do leaders really matter? We keep visiting this question, and we say, yeah, they do matter. It depends on the context. It depends on the leader, and so on. 
And yet we haven't, I think there's so many unanswered questions. For example, if you look at the nexus of entrepreneurship and large, you know, well-established post-entrepreneurial firms, what is the role of leadership? You know, when, when should there be a real transition from an entrepreneurial leader to a more professional leader? And what effect does that have on strategy? I don't think we have answered that question. You know, why is it that firms that grow very quickly do exceptionally well and then start floundering? Is it because you have the wrong leader or is it the wrong strategy or is it because competition has come in? So, so you know, unpacking some of those will help us answer the question. And then the last thing I'm getting intrigued by is, you know, I, used to, I, I teach, I used to teach a class on global strategy and I'm now thinking if I were to teach global strategy now, Richard, I have no clue what I would teach. Mm -hmm. Okay, so because it's like deglobalization, is it here to stay? And, and what is, you know, what are the trade-offs in terms of, we used to preach this transnational corporation, you can have efficiency, you can have effectiveness, the transnational manager, the global manager, all that is now out the window. We have a highly politicized nationalistic movement where boundaries are becoming stronger. What advice do we give companies like, you know, that, that think that they can leverage cross-national differences to build competitive advantage? Mm -hmm. Do we now throw all that out the window? Can we do research on which companies are going to do well? They'll remain flexible, but don't, their cost structures don't go out the window. So I think there are a lot of interesting questions around the trends in deglobalization. How do you adapt your strategy? Those are good questions. Thank you. Yeah, and I appreciate Nandini asking you uh, highlighted some of the dynamism and some of the answers we have, right? That when the playing field changes, maybe we've got to update our, our answers and our priors a little bit. Um, I know I have a stock of questions. Is there anyone else that has questions right now at this point? And you, there will be more opportunity, but just checking in. Anyone? Seen, I saw in the chat that you had a question. Want to chime in? Sure. Um, Nandini, um, thank you so much for, for doing this. And let me just say, I, I get to a question in a second, but I don't know that you remember this, but you know, when I was a PhD student at the doctoral consortium of ASD, well, I guess the back then it was BPS. BPS, yeah. <laughs> um, you gave me a bunch of comments in my job market paper, and those were exactly the questions I got asked three months later in my job talk, and it's the only reason I got a job. So. Thank you, to begin Asim. with, thank you for that. And I can bear witness to the sort of mentorship. Uh, and I know Asim. Rich had a question, but I'm going to let Rich ask that question. Um, you know, uh, since we were, since you were just talking about this, I, I was, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about it a little bit, but, you know, as we think about the pandemic, uh, and uh, I know you've just stepped down from your lead positions, so you're trying to put that behind you, but, but still, as we think about the pandemic, how do you see that, if at all, changing business schools changing business education? You know, I, I love that question. And I, even before stepping down, I was raising these difficult questions on my, in my dean's meetings and so on. Uh, and from a strategic perspective, right? And I can, I can wax eloquent on this because I think this is going to be a huge question. I don't know how many of you have been following the Harvard um, webinars and so on, where they're talking about disruption, right? So what the pandemic, I'm sure all our institutions did this, right? Overnight, we moved online. I'm moving online. I teach a residential intense week and I'm doing it online. Um, and to use, I'm going to refer to some core strategy concepts. You know, there were clear mobility barriers between the online 
business model and the residential business model. And our sustainable competitive advantage as a high cost, high tuition residential model was based on this interactive experience, right? Now, as a response to the pandemic, we have gone online. And what have we demonstrated to the students? If we do it well, which we should, right? We don't want the online experience to be poor. So we're doing a lot of stuff. We're enhancing technology. I've been in eight webinars that have taught me how to make sure case studies online are you know, integrating, interacting well, and so on and so forth. So I'm developing new skills that I didn't have. What next, Asim? Have we now created a monster? I, I, keep, I keep telling my colleagues, can we get this genie back into the bottle? Next week, I'm going to be teaching intensely in our online MBA program. We launched it five years ago. We've gone from 40 to 130. Um, we price it below our full-time MBA and our EMBA. In the last few months, all our programs are online. So we have some paying high tuition online, some paying low tuition online, with different expectations. If we do the online delivery as well as we claim we will, okay, the value proposition we're giving our students, the genie is outside the bottle. And when we come back and we say, after the COVID, well, we're going to go back to the classroom and it's going to be business as usual. We're going to charge you the higher tuition dollars. One of the, you know, there, there are two possible, two things are happening. One is from an administration standpoint, we are finding that, hey, we can teach 50, we can teach 75, we can teach 130. Same faculty member, same salary, same number of hours, double the number of students. So the cost proposition to the university is pretty attractive. But from a strategy perspective, I am scared to death. I'm absolutely scared to death what this does. Because this is collapsing the market in so many ways that the distinctiveness of residential education vis-a-vis -vis online is getting blurred. So this is what I would call, um, to use Greek mythology, a Pyrrhic victory. You will win the battle, but you may lose the war. You can have a great online delivery, but can you go back to the residential environment? And now as a faculty member, can I say, I would love to teach this class, but I'm going to cap it at 45 because I find that this economies of scale after 45 in a case discussion, which is true. I'm going to be teaching 120 students and I'm petrified. I can't see 120 on the screen. I'll see 25, 30. What happens to the rest of them, right? How do I cold call? How do I make sure that I really can get the body language? I mean, some of us who, I rebel in that in the classroom. I've done 30 years of that. I love going into a classroom, cold calling, walking up to Richard and saying, what do you think? You know, in your face, I can't do that kind of stuff, right? That's not my style. Um, from a strategic standpoint, what's going to be the sustainable competitive advantage? And what will be the competencies you will require? You will require immense investments in technology, You'll require faculty who are very savvy in the technology and you will need, you know, then you can leverage scale economies. But I think it will blur the marketplace, the differentiation factor will go down and we may all start competing with one another much more rigorously. And I think that's, we all know, who wins when there's tough competition? The buyer. We will create a lot of value, but the value will be captured by the buyers. In this case, think of students. And I don't know at your institution, but I've heard calls for give us part of our tuition back. We didn't pay this to be online, right? 
in an emergency, they may be willing to do it, but if it's going to be a sustainable model, then we're really in this, uh, you know, it, it could be pretty dangerous. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but this is, this keeps me up at night. Um, and I don't know if you've seen that there are a couple of very interesting cases uh, written, one is written on Harvard and one is to you. They're both Harvard Business School cases on disruption in the higher education uh, place and how do you deal with that? Uh, and they're very interesting cases. Uh, and I'm seeing this real life being played out in my institution as it is across the world. How are we gonna emerge out of this with our business model intact? I don't think it'll remain intact, but how are we gonna save our residential experience? from the onslaught of commoditization, as I call it. You know, Nandini, as you're answering Sina's question, it strikes me that it ties really nicely with your earlier beating the drum of what is strategy, yeah. right? Maybe we as strategy scholars are uniquely positioned to think about the strategy of higher education and business education and how to yeah. adapt it um, and pivot it as needed. So. Mm -hmm. um, all right, I'm trying to look at the chat again. I apologize that I'm on my phone now. Um, Richard, you had a question about mentoring. Um, I don't have the timestamp on it, so I'm not quite sure if it's been answered adequately, but did you want to ask it still? Okay, so do you want me to do number two or number three? Uh, whichever you prefer. Okay, so they're similar questions. One's about being a good colleague and one's about being a good mentor. So maybe I'll just start with the colleague one. Um, what does it mean, in your experience, what does it mean to be a good colleague? And um, who have you observed being an especially good colleague and what made them so good? I have been very lucky, Richard, that I've been at an institution where there is, there is you know, I'm, I'm going to blur the distinction between being a good colleague and a good mentor. Um, you can be a good colleague at any, you know, and you could be a very good mentor as well. To me, those two are closely connected. For most junior faculty, I think being a good colleague is just doing what you're supposed to do, right? Which is People ask you for feedback on papers, be receptive, you know, be part of the community, share your teaching materials, you know, help, you know, in, be available to help others, right? That's, that's being a good colleague. I think being a good mentor goes beyond that, right? A mentor is someone that you can trust, right? that you can ask questions that you may not want to ask someone else, okay? Someone that you can be really candid with, someone, at least that's how I see my role as a mentor. That I'm, a, I'm I think I'm an effective mentor if if a scene comes to me not just with questions about his research, but you know, so and so asked me to do this for the department. I really don't want to do it, but I'm a junior faculty. How should I handle this? The fact that the scene felt confident enough that I would be able to help him out deal with a tricky situation is is a word of confidence. Is is trust, right? Um, so I think a, a mentor watches out for you both intellectually as well as helps, you know, guide you making some of those tricky institutional decisions. A mentor also kind of looks ahead and tries to anticipate what kind of issues might happen to you if you did something proactively. You know, helps you identify problems even where you don't, if you are not aware of those problems. For example, if you see a junior colleague not doing something proactively which you think they should be doing. A mentor would, a good colleague would respond, say, yeah, I think you should do this if you ask me a question. A mentor would say, hey, Asim, you know what? I think you should be doing this. I haven't seen you do this. Or the last conversation we had, you know, I'm just picking on Asim because he said I was a good mentor. But 
so so i think a, a mentor is really watching out for you for your well-being anticipating issues helping you anticipate them in the future and kind of paving the you know smoothing the path for you um you know um, a mentor should create should be working hard to identify opportunities for you so one thing i have done with uh as, as a faculty dean, and even before that, I used to tell my senior, my senior colleagues is, you know, we have spent so much time in this profession. We have a lot of tacit knowledge. Let's, let's kill the tacit knowledge, you know. So there's one school of thought that says, you know, I, I learned from the school of hard knocks. You will learn from the school of hard knocks. I don't like that. My approach is I have learned from the school of hard knocks. I'm going to make sure that you don't have to go through those hard knocks to learn that. So let me share my mistakes with you so that you won't make those mistakes. You know, one thing, for example, I never did was I didn't, you know, share my early papers with others or get feedback or proactively reach out to people because I was kind of, oh, they were, you know, if I had done that, I think some of the problems I had would have been sorted out earlier. But I, when I see a junior faculty member or a PhD student not doing that, I tell them, hey, you know what, I made this mistake. It wasn't a good one. So why don't you do it this way? So I think mentoring really is think about all the mistakes you made. And when you see someone else making that mistake, tell them how they can avoid it. So let them learn from your successes. More important, be honest about the things that didn't work, your failures, and share your failures because you don't want history to repeat itself with your mentees. Uh, thank you for the, you know, Nandini, definitely embody that generosity of spirit that you just described to us. Thank you. Um, and I apologize if I mispronounced your name. Um, Simantini, do you want to jump in with your question for Nandini here about sort of managing all the different aspects of her life? Hi, Emily. Yes, you got my name uh, pretty much correct. So thank you for that. Um, Nandini, you have done a lot and you've also talked about how your career doesn't, shouldn't be the most important thing in life, that life goes on um, and that it, you should maintain your interests. And at the same time, you've done a lot of service. You've been a great mentor. You've been very impactful. Uh, could you talk about how you've managed your energy, your time? Like, what have been the mechanics of being able to do what you've done, you know, and maintained your creativity and spirit and figured out a path forward? Because that needs a lot of creativity. Uh, thanks, Simantini. Um, that's, you know, I, I have to confess, I don't think I have done as much as I maybe could have done. I'm just going to speculate for a minute. Um, again, I want to come back to strategy. Strategy is about trade-offs, right? What you say no to is more important than what you say yes to. Um, so I think it's a multifaceted question. So I will start off by saying that I have said no to more things than I've said yes to. When I said yes to the vice dean position, that was three years ago, I had still been, I had been in academia for many, many years. So it seemed like it was the right time to do that. I have been very lucky, you know. Um, I like to go back to some of my, my Hinduism roots, for those of us, you know, who, who can kind of think about that. I've been reading the last few years, um, I've been reading, going back to some books I have read over time to ask this question, which is how much credit does one take for one's outcomes in life? And I think 
there is definitely your effort, time management, but it's just one little part. There's this big part, again, I'm not fatalistic, but I'm saying being at the right place at the right time, having the right resources and having the right opportunities makes a big difference. So I'm very fortunate I say I made a lot of mistakes and I was lucky enough never to have to pay the price for those mistakes. The story could have ended very differently. My decision to have a kid early on, my decision to kind of give priority to cooking over revising a paper, I might have not made tenure. So the important thing is not what the outcome is, right? The important question I ask myself is, are you comfortable irrespective of the outcome? So I think the fact that I always enjoyed the process and didn't compromise, gave me the energy, gave me the courage to go on. If you talk to people who know me very well, very close friends, you know, my family, most of them would portray me as someone who kind of did work part-time, and this is a true confession. My kids often thought I was growing up that mom was a part-time because I would always come back at three, pick them up from school because I was paranoid that they would hang around the wrong people. So I'd bring them up and then, you know, so, but that also meant that when I worked in the morning from 7.30 to three, I worked like a maniac, right? I would not. And not having a TV, not having a personal computer for a long time was, was pretty good. You really focused on it. So I think single-minded focus when you're working and managing your time is really important, but I don't want to underemphasize the importance of luck and working with really good people and having good opportunities. I've had great help along the way, whether it was my department chair who recommended me for an editorial board, or a really smart PhD student who was able to get those papers to the revision process, the very supportive husband who is an academic, you know, they've been partners along the way. If he had been an, I often say if he had been an, if he had not been an academic, could we have had really this partnership where I'm revising this paper, the kids are yours for the next two months, well, not really. He started cooking only when our granddaughter was born, until then I used to cook. But I think, you know, I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I don't want to take more credit than I deserve. This is a village, and I have been exceptionally lucky. I've had great PhD students. I've had a very supportive husband. I've had great senior colleagues who have stepped up to the plate. I've had, you know, really good department chairs, good vice-deans of faculty. In the broader academy, I've had very good role models senior faculty who have helped me out, who have recommended me for things that I didn't think I even deserved. So it's, I've been inordinately fortunate. Yes, you know, fortune favors the brave. And I think you want to definitely put in the effort, but we all know stories where you put in all the effort and the outcome is very different. It need not end happily. It can end quite negatively. And, and I'm very, very fortunate that I can sit here and come across as someone who has had a good career when it could have been exactly the opposite. And for that, I would definitely thank, you know, circumstances, thank the people that I've been blessed with in my life, personally and, you know, professionally. Uh, and and that's, that's where I would leave it at. I would say, you know, but the fact is I've enjoyed the process and I didn't compromise. I mean, I, what I look forward most to now, now that I've stepped down from my vice dean position, other than, I know Alex is on the call, so I better say revising that paper is a top priority, Alex, but equally important is going to see my two granddaughters. I have two granddaughters, four and one, and I haven't seen them in six months. So the day I finish teaching, I'm gonna to fly, to fly up to the North, uh, Northern California and spend a whole couple of weeks with them. And 
But you know, even when I'm there, Simantini, I you know I'll spend a day with them, and when they go to sleep, I'll be working. Yes, Alex, I'll be working. Don't worry. <laughs> so you know, and it's that's been true of my life throughout. Is I you know, I I do the stuff I'm supposed to do with my family, with my children, with my grandchildren. But I also love what I do. I love the work. I love the research process, and I make time for that. Do I make as much time as I could? No, I probably do less than I should. That's fine. That's a trade-off. Thank you, Nandini. That was insightful. Yeah, I also really appreciate your response there, tying it to our focus on trade-offs. You know, what a strategy about so trade-offs. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. Um, I think we all have uh, learned um, some things that will really help us as we think about our careers and work. Um, and in terms of some of the personal things you shared, we're appreciative. And Asim has a few more questions to ask you. He's Asim is the new Samina right now. So he's going to step <laughs> okay. in with the STR's fun are, are questions. These the, are these the fun questions? Yes, these are the they fun are. questions. Okay, so good, I, good, okay. They're usually Sabina, so I'm going to channel Samina for the next 10 minutes, which means okay. I'm going to be about five times as nice and, and <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, so, um, you know, you mentioned, um, you mentioned cooking as, as something that's very dear to, to, your, to your heart. What would you say, what would your kids say is your best dish? Well, it depends on who you're talking to. If you talk to my son, he will say, I make some very good pasta mm -hmm. and uh, chaat. I don't know if, you know, so chaat is the Indian dish, yeah. right? And I can make six, seven different types of chaat. So my son will, you know, he will just text me from his work and he will say, can you make potato chaat today? Or will you make dahi chaat? You make papri chaat? And I have, I have a pantry stocked with eight or nine basic ingredients. And what he doesn't know is it's just mix and match. He thinks everything's a new dish. It's not. So I think my kids would, would say that, yeah, yeah, that I'm a okay. very good, you know. I also make a lot of South Indian dishes, so I'm pretty good at that. Yeah. Uh, and then out, other than cooking, what else do you do to unwind? Okay, so this is funny. I'll, I'll share this. I, I never, growing up, I had, I had passion. I was passionate about acting and singing. So mm -hmm. I was like a lead in my college place. And years later, I found the ability to act is great in a classroom because I could do drama, you know. Like when someone hasn't read a case, I could go up to them and literally cry and say, why? You know, why haven't you read the case? It just breaks my heart. Um, I always thought I would be an actress, but then my middle-class Indian upbringing didn't quite gel with that. I'm also, I love music. I, I, I'm a trained singer. I, I learned classical music, vocal growing up in India. And I'm actually going back to it now. I'm, I'm practicing again because my four-year-old granddaughter has a great talent in, in music. So she practices every day and I practice along with her. Um, so I love singing. So in my spare time, I'm cooking and I'm singing. So the kitchen is off limits. If people come into the kitchen, I'm singing at the top of my voice and I'm cooking. So everybody stays away. Um. And is uh, is is this Hindustani or Carnatic? It's Carnatic, but I also sing uh, Bollywood music. Okay. Was, and, and yeah. And is that your favorite genre of music? Are you like other genres? You know, I I, I love Western classical. I mean, mm -hmm. I KUSC is our local station. We support that. Mm -hmm. And I it's it's a twenty four hour station. So when I'm not singing or listening to Hindi film music or Carnatic music, I have KUSC because I'm just a huge fan of you know, Tchaikovsky, Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, you name them, you know, I listen to it all the time in my car, in my radio, uh, in my, you know, in my office. So I love Western classical. 
um, music, and I I'm trained in Carnatic, and I sing Hindi songs, Hindi Bollywood music. Pretty much covers the full range. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess you should take up hip hop, but you know. Um, yeah, I tried that. <laughs> no, not my type. <laughs> not your scene. Um, yeah. uh, so, um, you know, in terms of uh, what's your favorite city to visit or well to live? Well, I'm going to say, you know, they say people who are New Yorkers think New York is the best place on earth, right? Mm. I'm from Mumbai. Mumbai is the place where I have my fondest memories. You know, I, I, was, I was an actress there and in my college, my college friends are still there. Um, my brother lives there. So home is where the heart is, my, you know. Um, that's my favorite city. And, I, I and still, you, I still have fond hopes of going back and retiring there, and uh, you know, I have a couple of things I set up in my father's name in Mumbai, so I would like to go back and do do more there. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and you've made the transition to calling it Mumbai from calling it Bombay, so there. It you took go. me a long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it took me a long time. Well, you know, I, I, at least uh, at least LA, the traffic reminds yeah. you of home, right? Yeah, but um, if, if I had to pick a city outside of Mumbai, I would say Paris. I love uh -huh. Paris. Why? I've been there a couple of times. It's just a history. I mean, I can just walk, you know, I can just walk in Paris for hours and hours and, you know, growing up, I read all about the, the French Revolution and uh, Napoleon Bonaparte and, you know, it is French, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's the whole package deal, right? I just love Paris. Um, so thinking about reading outside of work, uh, fiction, nonfiction, do you have a preference? You know, I love, I used to love nonfiction. I used to be very much into the mystery genre. So I used mm -hmm. to read all these thrillers and so on. But I would say in the last 10, 10 to 15 years, I've gravitated almost 100% towards nonfiction. Uh -huh. I love reading biographies and autobiographies of people I admire. Mm -hmm. so I have reread now in the last few months, uh, Mahatma Gandhi's Experiments with Truth. I'm also reading some reinterpretations of his, of his book. You know the reinterpretations of, and I think right. it's so. Um, I I enjoyed very much reading Michelle Obama's Becoming. Mm -hmm. you know, um, I started reading a lot of history. So a few many years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, teach a few sessions with um, a USC history professor. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, he was a California State historian. Kevin Starr unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, um, and he wrote, he's written the definitive pieces on California history. And he picked my interest in California history. So I read all about California history, then read books on LA history. So I started reading much more. Um, I developed teaching sessions on business history, looking at LA from a business standpoint. So we would go teach these classes for undergrads, where he would look at it from a history angle, I would look at it from a business angle, and we would look at how LA was shaped by investments made by different types of businesses over the century. So it was very fascinating. So I, I do read a lot of history, a lot of biographies, autobiographies. Cool. And have you kept up with the uh, fame chans and the Mahadevi Varmas? You know, well, I, you know, it's, I, 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 yeah. But my favorite author though is Rabindranath Tagore. So oh. if you think about the, um, you know, so Rabindranath Tagore, for those of you who may not know, you know, it's, it's a Nobel Prize winning Indian author from Bengal. And I still find no one can write short stories the way he does. Uh, and maybe it's the nostalgia. It evokes memories of growing up the hot summers in India where we had nothing to do other than just 
read a book, fanning yourself. But I think I, I still go back and read those and I introduce my, my kids to, to his books and they agree that some of those short stories are amazing. Right. So I'm also reading some of the more contemporary Indian authors like Arundhati mm -hmm. Roy. Um, you know. So yeah, I, I enjoy reading that. I haven't frankly done much reading in the last three years, but getting back to it now. Yeah, now you can go back to that. I, I, I really can't channel Samina here because I would want to do the Bangla thing, but for Tagore, but I, <laughs> unfortunately, my language skills don't go there. Favorite dessert? Ras Malai. Ah. Well, for you those of you who explain to know, people yes, what that is? It's, it's just, you know, I'm not a, I, I don't eat a lot of sweets. I don't mm. have a sweet tooth. Um, but Ras Malai is this, like kind of a cottage cheese ball marinated in saffron milk with not too much sugar and with lots of nuts. So I, I, you know, I'm not a big sweet person, I like that. But my go-to is ice cream. And I, by the way, I make ice cream at home, Indian ice cream. So I make all kinds of kulfis. So kulfi is Indian ice cream, which you make with, right. you know, different kinds of flavors. Uh, anything with mango, I love. So you can put mango into anything and that would be my favorite dessert. Um, okay, um, you know, since we were talking about, uh, Emily, you know, already asked you some part of this, but since we were talking about going into academia together, when you and your husband took the GMAT, which of you got the higher score? Well, I have to say this. He got the higher score because he actually studied. Right, okay. But sure. considering I didn't study at all, because I actually didn't want to study and didn't want to come, I did pretty well. But... At IAM Ahmedabad, I was the rank holder. He wasn't, so it's even. You were rank four or something, if I remember this right. Yes, because yes, <laughs> yes. I remember we, we had this conversation once about. And, and by the way, the, you know, I often tell him that I would have ended up in the top in the second year as well, but then we were dating then and he distracted me. So my second year was not as good as the first. Well, trade-offs. <laughs> trade-offs, exactly. It wasn't too bad a trade-off. Um, Okay, um, that's pretty much all I have in terms of fun questions, Nandini. Thank you so much again for doing this. Uh, this again, fun. on behalf of the SDR division, uh, you know, it's been a real pleasure. I'm going to pass it back to Emily to wrap Thank up. Thank you, Asim. Really good to see you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Asim, for asking the GMAT question that we've all been waiting for this whole time. So thank you. <laughs> um, and Nandini, you know, thank you so much. I, this is such a, a, a wonderful experience for all of us to get to learn from you. Thank you, uh, you know, not just for your generosity of spirit, but for your sharing your insights and the way that you help so many of us on this call. Um, I'm so glad that these are being recorded and this will be posted. And so, you know, scholars who are not able to join today, your future scholars will also continue to benefit. And uh, hopefully we can all check in in a couple of years and see, you know, what's happening with the business model of our education. Yeah, that would be fa fabulous. I really want to thank all questions. of you. Yeah, thank you all so much. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Asim. Richard, I know, you know, Samina had to leave. Uh, Eunice, it was great seeing you. Great, you know, it's just been really wonderful to meet all of you. And, and please feel free to reach out to me directly if you have any follow-up questions. You know, I'm just inspired to be part of the strategy family. And I know we'll all do great things together. Good luck and stay safe, okay? Okay. Thank you, Nandini. Take care, everyone.